Well, as we begin this morning with regard to the sermon, I want to tell you that I absolutely love Christian stories. Christian stories written in particular for children. Because they're always written in such a way to drive home one aspect of the Christian faith. So glorious, wonderful, bite-sized, easy-to-read gospel truths written for children that can bless us, help us to understand who God is. For example, Max Licato's book, Children of the King. So if you don't know that story, it's about five orphans who live in a very small village. Until one day the king hears about their misfortune and he decides to adopt them as his own children, which obviously makes them very happy because the king, who they've never met, wants to be their father. But when the people of the village hear about it, they immediately instruct the kids that they must prepare for the king by working on ways to impress him. Because only those who have great gifts and abilities and talents, they say, are ever allowed to live in the castle. Which only highlights that they don't know the king at all. But the children immediately go to work upon their instructions. One decides to carve an ornament. Another paints a picture. The third practices a song and the fourth starts studying. So four out of the five start prepping and planning. They start preparing in ways in which they can impress the king. But one girl has nothing to offer. She can't carve or paint. She can't sing a song or play a tune or dance a jig. All she has to offer is her heart. So she continues to do what she always does. She waits at the town gate. She grooms the visitors' horses. She feeds their animals. And she offers them a quiet place to rest. Until one day, the king comes to visit. Only he was dressed as a normal traveler, so all the other orphans were too busy planning and preparing to give him any of their attention. But the girl groomed his donkey. She fed his animals and she gave him a quiet place to rest. And she listened to this stranger as he explained what he experienced with the other orphans. To which the girl's eyes immediately widened because she suddenly realized this traveler is not just a traveler. This is the king. To which she immediately says, sir, I have nothing by which to impress you. But I'd still very much like to be your child. To which the king responds, my dear, you gave me the best gift of all. Your heart. Along with your kindness and your affection and your love. Of course, you can be my child. Now that story reminds me so very much of 1 Samuel. Because people are so often confused by who God is and what God desires. When really all he cares about is not your outward appearance or any way you're trying to be impressive with your gifting or your ability or your talents or your treasures. But what God cares most about is your heart. And 1 Samuel, similar to Max Licato, is a story. 
In fact, it's a collection of stories that makes up this one big story about a king after God's own heart. But what we need to understand, even as we kick off the book, is that these stories are not fiction. This isn't a child's storybook. This isn't a fairy tale. No, 1 Samuel is fact. And it's all about how God has worked in and through the lives of his people so that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty. Because just like Max Lucado's story, 1 Samuel points forward to something bigger than itself. It points forward to the one true king who is willing and able to rule and reign over us, heal and help us, care for us, and conquer our greatest enemies. Not Goliath, but the enemies of sin, death, and the devil. So we can be welcomed into God's family as one of God's children and enjoy the king in his everlasting kingdom forever. So if you will, in that way, 1 Samuel is radically different than any children's story because it's true. And so we're going to be confronted with the reality of do we live in a fairy tale? The things that this world tells us, this is how things are? Or are we going to embrace the reality of God's story that we see in 1 Samuel that has everything to do with our eternal well-being because being in God's family has everything to do with responding rightly to King Jesus, the one true King who has a heart after God's own heart and has demonstrated that through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he desperately wants you to have a heart after his own heart that loves him and lives for his glory. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is on page 225. I also want to encourage you to grab my outline. If you grab my outline, this yellow page in your bulletin, it's going to be very helpful for a couple of reasons. If you look at the one side, it says king after God's own heart. That will be the outline for today's message. If you flip it over, I gave you an outline for the entire book of First Samuel. So my encouragement to you would be to be reading through First Samuel, to even take this outline and just follow along with it. You can even fill in additions to it. This is as much of my outline for First Samuel that I could fit on this piece of paper. So there's more to it than this, but this is a big part of it. And if you look at the First Samuel overview, you'll realize that it, when you look at it, number one, two, three, Samuel, Saul, and David, and you flip it over and you look at the content of First Samuel, you see Samuel, Saul, and David. So in that part, they're very similar. One is a bit shorter than the other. But I do want to tell you as we kick off, what is my goal this morning? Well, I will tell you because we are going to walk through 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 31. That's 31 chapters. And if you know me, you should be nervous. If you look at that outline, you should be nervous. So how long are we going to be in 1 Samuel this morning? Great question. But my goal is not to overwhelm you. But instead, number one, to explain the background of the book. So author and date, timing and context, and really some of the biblical themes that 1 Samuel assumes that you know and that you understand. Then number two, I want to walk through the content of the book. And I want to walk through the content by telling you some of these stories 
There's stories about Samuel. There's stories about Saul. There's stories about David. They're small stories. They're glorious stories, great stories. And in ways, they point us forward to the Lord Jesus. So I want you to get a feel for the different stories of 1 Samuel. And that'll be the content as we walk through Samuel, Saul, and David. And then we're going to talk about application. Here's my theme for 1 Samuel. You'll see it on the top of your outline. It says that we are naturally a people who cannot and will not obey God's law and desperately want to be like everyone else. Therefore, we need a king after God's own heart who can deliver and rule us, heal and help us, care for us, and conquer our greatest enemies. And as a result, through that one champion, we are brought into God's eternal favor. Let me start by making some quick comments about A, the author and the date, background information. It's helpful for you to know that the book of Samuel was originally one book. So what we currently call 1st and 2nd Samuel was originally all together. And there's clear pointers to that, even in the fact that 1st Samuel starts with a prayer. It starts with Hannah's prayer, and then 2nd Samuel ends with a prayer. That's David's prayer. And those prayers are very similar, super similar, saying the same themes. And they serve as bookends to the entire narrative, as well as highlighting that it's ultimately about the Lord Jesus, because both prayers declare that God will judge the ends of the earth, And that he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed in order to bring about his salvation. First 10, chapter 2, verse 10, 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 10, and then 2 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 51. Those are your bookends. First and 2 Samuel were one book, most likely separated because they were too long to fit on one scroll, hence divided 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, with regard to A, author and date, we don't know for sure who are all the people who wrote 1 Samuel. And I say it that way because Samuel was certainly one of the authors, but he was not the only author for Samuel. And we know that. How do we know that? Well, because Samuel dies in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So he's dead. He can't write 26 to 31 or 2 Samuel. So most agree Samuel is a compilation of stories gathered together by different priests, so different authors of individual stories with one compiler who put them all together sometime during the 10th century, probably during the reign of King Rehoboam, but certainly sometime after the death of King Solomon, David's son. Solomon dies in 931 BC. Brings us to be timing and context. But in order to understand timing and context, I want to get us into 1 Samuel. So timing and context, let's start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you look at verse 12. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. I'll read verses 12 to 17. Helps us understand the context. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast. 
for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, the reason this is such a helpful passage is because it highlights that things aren't going very well in Israel. In fact, I would say they're terrible. And that's because 1 Samuel was written during the time of the judges. So Samuel is actually a contemporary of Samson, who, if you remember, Judges 15, 16, and 17, was constantly fighting against the Philistines, who were on the rise, serving as Israel's arch enemies. Well, the same is true all throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel. In fact, if you flip forward to chapter 4, where the section heading says the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, verse 2 tells us the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. So that's the timing Right? It helps us understand that we are in the same timing as the end of the book of Judges. And we know how the book of Judges ends, don't we? Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So just grab a hold of that. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you need to understand, that's not a compliment. Doing what is right in your own eyes is not a reference to being an independent thinker or being an initiative taker. No, according to the Bible, doing what is right in your own eyes means you're living disobedient to God's word, God's law, and God's purposes. So this is context that you need to understand and that 1 Samuel assumes that you understand and that you know. You need to recognize we're in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel assumes that you know the storyline all the way from Genesis up through Judges and Ruth into 1 Samuel. One of the things that it assumes you recognize and you understand is Genesis 3.15. God's promise that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman, ultimately the Lord Jesus, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, the devil. But pictures of that, as we go from Genesis 3.15 into the New Testament, pictures of that come up all over the place in 1 Samuel. Not only the enmity that exists between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, just think Saul and David, but the reality that the seed of the serpent will have its head crushed. I mean, David crushes the head of Goliath and cuts his head right off, 1 Samuel chapter 17. But also Saul's head is cut off in 1 Samuel 31, end of the book. So you know he's a seed of the serpent, which you could have assumed because he's a Benjaminite, which is a totally wicked tribe at the end of the book of Judges. But you see, that's all context that 1 Samuel assumes that you know. Another statement regarding context. 1 Samuel assumes you know God's relationship to God's people. 
that he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, brought them to the promised land, and that God gave them his law, which includes Deuteronomy chapter 17 and his provision for a king who will rule and reign over God's people with a heart after God's own heart and a passion to know God's word, love God's law, and live for God's purposes, including being a blessing to God's people, all for God's glory. First Samuel assumes that you know God desires a king to rule over his people, but it has to be a king like this. So all of that is context. First Samuel assumes you know and assumes you understand. But before we move on, let me ask this question. What is first and second Samuel all about? What is it all about? Let me answer that question as we jump in. It's all about establishing the, the legitimacy of David's dynasty. So first Samuel reveals what kind of king is needed. What are we looking for in this king? Well, it has to be a king after God's own heart. And then what second Samuel does is it reveals God's promises to that king and that king's son that he will be a forever king and that he will establish a kingdom that will last forever. So with all of that as background, let's transition to number two, the content of 1 Samuel. And let me just say it again. 1 Samuel is a story. It's a collection of stories that make up one big story, all pointing forward, little stories and big stories to the Lord Jesus, the one true king after God's own heart. So what we're going to do is we're going to help you be familiar with some of the stories, and I'm going to tip my hand and point to the Lord Jesus as we make our way through it. So let's start with A, Samuel, a picture of God's grace. How does 1 Samuel begin? It begins with the birth of Samuel. First Samuel chapter 1. So you have this woman, Hannah, who's barren, not able to have children, who's beseeching God, begging for a child. And God hears her cry, opens her barren room, and gives her a son, miraculously. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Of course it does. God gloriously, miraculously giving a son to a barren woman. And when she receives that son, that beloved son, what does she do? She immediately praises God. She, she prays, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. And she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in God's salvation. So, so Hannah knows this son Samuel is part of God's great work of redemption. And the salvation that he will provide through his far greater son. So clearly a picture of another barren woman, Mary, who gives birth to a son miraculously, the Lord Jesus, including her prayer and her praise for God's great work of redemption, namely Mary's Magnificat. So already we see Samuel points forward to the Lord Jesus because he's presented to us not only as a miraculous son being given, That's clear in chapter 1. He is a miraculous son being given. But he's also a priest anointed, a prophet confirmed, and he's a king anointed. So all three of those, prophet, priest, and king, pictured in this one person, Samuel. Because after Samuel is weaned, Hannah takes him up to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle resides, so the place where God meets man, and she hands him over to Eli the priest. 
Now, as we read earlier, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, Eli's sons are wicked. They are wicked priests. But now look at chapter 2, verse 18. Because in contrast to those wicked priests, we find Samuel. Samuel ministering before the Lord in the tabernacle. So Samuel is functioning as a priest, including wearing a linen ephod, the specific clothes worn by the priests. And by doing so, he demonstrates that the coming salvation requires a priest, just like we saw in Hebrews, who honors the Lord, represents his people, and is willing to offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the people. So not like Eli, and certainly not like Eli's wicked sons. No, they're seeds of the serpent, doing only that which is right in their own eyes. But instead, God says, look at 1 Samuel 2.35. In the context of Samuel, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and is according to my mind. And I will build him a sure house, a a stable house, steady house, an eternal house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Do you see Samuel pictures a priest like that? But the promise is God will build him a house that lasts forever. Now, if you know 2 Samuel 7, that's the same promise God makes to King David. So we're already seeing the son that's given is also the priest who's appointed, but he's also pointing us to the king who's anointed. But who else is Samuel? Well, he's not just a son and a priest. He's also number three, a prophet confirmed. You look at chapter three. Here's the story. Samuel is sleeping when he's woken up repeatedly by a voice calling out his name. And he assumes that to be Eli calling for him. So he he gets up and he goes running three times in a row. Three times in a row, he finds out it's not Eli who is calling, but instead it's the Lord who is calling. So Eli tells Samuel to respond by saying, Here I am, Lord, speak, for I am listening. Which is the whole point. Because God speaks to and through his prophets so that the prophet might speak to the people on God's behalf which he does through Samuel, who speaks a word against Eli and against Eli's sons. But what's the result? We'll look at chapter 3, verse 19. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, so all the way from the south to the north, they all knew Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So Samuel's clearly a son. He's clearly a priest and a prophet. But from chapter 4 to chapter 7, we also learn that he's the type of king that God is looking for. Because the people are sinning, they're rejecting the Lord, and they start using the Ark of the Covenant as a secret weapon to defeat their enemies rather than trusting in the Lord. So God punishes Israel by letting the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant But then he punishes the Philistines by bringing plagues upon them for having the Ark of the Covenant. So in chapter 5, verse 1, great story, awesome story. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, the Ark is brought into the temple of Dagon. The Philistines false god. 
But every morning the Philistines wake up only to find Dagon bowing down before the one true God of Israel. And every single morning they find him with his head knocked off. So they put his head back on and they stand him back up. Next morning he's falling down, worshiping the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant. Head fell off again. Great story. But just another picture of the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent. But it's all in the context of Samuel. So Samuel emerges as the last great judge who leads the people in repentance and prayer, crying out to God for deliverance and conquering their enemies. In fact, look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. Here's the transition between Samuel and Saul. And there's a contrast. 1 Samuel 7, 13 says the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. When was the hand of the Lord against the Philistines? All the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken were restored. We also see that there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Here's a question. What is a judge? Well, a judge is a deliverer. A judge is a ruler. You could even say a judge certainly acts like a king who conquers the people's enemy and delivers them from evil and brings them peace. So Samuel is a son given, a priest appointed, a prophet confirmed, and he's very much a king anointed. But why does that matter? Well, it matters because it gives us a very clear picture that one is coming who will be all of that rolled up into one in order to conquer our enemies, secure our salvation, and bring peace forevermore. In that way, Samuel points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a Samuel, a picture of God's grace. But Samuel is not a king, right? He's a judge, so he's technically not a king. We need a king. So as soon as we transition to chapter 8, we find Israel demanding a king. But it's a king like all the other nations. Look with me at 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. But they have rejected me from being king over you. You see, God is the one who ultimately rules and reigns over his people. So he's the one ultimately who heals and helps, cares and conquers. And the desire for a king is not necessarily a bad thing because God already set up a provision for it back in Deuteronomy 17. But their motivation is wrong. They don't want a king like God commands in Deuteronomy 17. They want a king like all the other nations. But the whole purpose of the king is to execute God's will for God's people 
with a heart after God's own heart. So a man who knows God's word, loves God's law, and walks in God's way. Which means, by definition, he's not going to be like all the other nations. Because he leads God's people to live radically different than all the other nations. And yet that's not what the people want, which highlights that they really have no desire to live for the Lord. So in chapter 9, they choose Saul, who I'm calling be a king in God's place. And right off the bat, we should know that Saul is bad news. Why should we know that Saul is bad news? Well, we would know that if we understand the context. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. Tells us, there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from the shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the people. So yes, without a doubt, Saul is physically impressive, right? He is tall, dark, and he's handsome, and he looks like a king. But he's a Benjaminite. And we know from Judges 19 and 20 that the tribe of Benjamin is currently categorized right now as being totally wicked. Why are they totally wicked? Because they raped and murdered a woman, divided her body into 12 pieces, and sent the parts to all the other tribes of Israel who are currently waging war against them. Judges 19 and 20. But you say to me, come on, let's give Saul a chance. Well, that's what the people do. 1 Samuel 9 to 12, they anoint Saul as king. But in chapter 13, the wheels start coming off and Saul disqualifies himself from being king over Israel because he's not a king who has a heart after God's own heart. He's not a king who obeys God's commands. That's not what he does. Two quick stories to highlight that reality. Flip with me to chapter 13, verse 5. Tells us that we are in the second year of Saul's reign when the Philistines again come out for war. This time they come out with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore. What does Saul do? Well, he looks at the Philistine army and he starts shaking in his boots and he immediately calls for Samuel to offer a burnt offering in order to secure the Lord's blessing in this battle. But Samuel is running late, at least according to Saul. So Saul puts himself forward as the priest and he offers the sacrifice himself, which is disobeying God's command. As soon as he finishes, in walks Samuel, who says, look at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13. Saul, you have done foolishly, for you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Notice verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after God's own heart. And the Lord has commanded him, the man after God's own heart, to be prince, to be ruler, to be king over his people. Why is that? Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. 
Now, is this the only time Saul disobeys God's command? No. Chapter 15 records another scenario. Look at verse 1 with me. Chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel says to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people Israel. Now, therefore, Samuel says, Listen to the words of the Lord. Here's the word of the Lord. Verse 3. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now read that because the command couldn't be more clear. These are enemies of God and God commands that you completely destroy them. What does Saul do? Well, he kills the people, but he leaves their king alive. And he destroys most of the stuff, but he keeps the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs. Verse 9 says, all that was good, he did not utterly destroy. So God sends Samuel to confront him. Here's the significant part. Because when Samuel comes to Saul, Saul argues that he's done all that the Lord commanded. Samuel clarifies. Verse 14 What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Key verse in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. So Saul's clearly not what God's looking for in a king. But that doesn't mean Saul isn't helpful. Saul is helpful Because he highlights that we're looking for a man after God's own heart. Well, what does that mean? It means that you're not disobeying God's word, but that you're obeying God's word. That you love God's word. You obey God's law and you live in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. The king must be a man after God's own heart. Meaning a man of God's own choosing and a man who knows God's word, loves God's law and lives according to God's way. And of course, in 1 Samuel, that's C, David, a man after God's own heart. If you look at my outline, you can see that I've listed six different ways in which David demonstrates this. And the first three are packed into the story of God choosing David to be king from all the brothers in his family and David stepping up to represent Israel in conquering Goliath, the Philistine giant. And those are pretty well-known story, so I'm going to summarize it for you. If you know the story, the Lord sends Samuel to Bethlehem to choose a king from the sons of Jesse. He goes to Bethlehem to choose a son of Jesse. Again, if you understand the context, let me just say this, right? So, so you have the time of Judges. We know the time of Judges is what we're dealing with in 1 Samuel. And then you understand 1 Samuel here as we jump into it. What's the book between it? Little trivia question in church. You're like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. There we go. What is the book of Ruth about? It's about how the genealogy gets us to 
David. Look at Ruth chapter 4 this afternoon. Tells you the genealogy. And Jesse is the father of David. That's how the book ends. So as soon as you read 1 Samuel 16, and you see that the Lord sends Samuel to Bethlehem to choose a king from the sons of Jesse, you know and are already anticipating David. But here's the story. Here's how it goes. Again, all of these little stories point us to the reality that we're looking forward to the Lord Jesus. So Samuel tells Jesse to bring his sons. He says to Jesse, bring all your sons. So one by one, all the sons parade in front of Samuel. And of course, Samuel sees the first son who's tall, dark, and handsome. And he says, oh, this must be the king. And then we get reminded again. No, it's not the outward appearance. As man chooses, no, God looks at the heart. And Samuel says, okay, that's right. So then all the sons, all seven sons parade in front of Samuel. Literally seven sons pass by him. And none of them is the king. So Samuel says to Jesse, are these all your sons? Oh no, there's one left. Apparently there's one missing. Jesse didn't bother to mention the youngest son who's out in the field shepherding the sheep. So the whole story comes to this glorious dramatic pause as we wait for David to arrive. Who is the youngest and the least likely and the lowliest son? And yet he's the one. So the Spirit of God comes upon him because he has a heart after God's own heart and is now a man filled with the Spirit who is immensely, who is immediately employed by Saul to ease the wicked spirit that has come upon him and is tormenting him. So by the end of chapter 16, David can easily be described as a lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem who is empowered by the Spirit and is able to soothe or cast out evil spirits from those who are possessed by them. Well, who does that sound like to you? Sounds like Jesus to me. But it only gets better in chapter 17 because the Israelites are hunkered down in battle with the Philistines. So for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath the giant comes out and taunts the Israelites. And he taunts them by saying, am I not the Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Therefore, choose for yourself a man to represent you to come out and fight with me because I represent the Philistines, you represent the people of God, and the winner takes all. Now what you need to understand is Saul's the obvious choice, but Saul's not the king. Either chosen by God or empowered by God or acting on God's behalf, but David is. And as soon as he hears Goliath, he puts himself forward as God's representative. He puts himself forward as God's Champion, which he makes abundantly clear in verse 46. Look at 17, chapter 17, verse 46. David says, this is what he declares. Here's how you know that he's God's representative and God's champion. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear or man's weapons, for the battle is the Lord's. And of course, David does exactly what he promised he would do, crushes Goliath's head with a single stone, runs up to him, and he cuts his head clean off. Right? One of the best stories in all the Bible. It's a fantastic story. 
But is the whole purpose to inspire us to conquer the giants in our lives? Absolutely not. David doesn't point to us. No, we're like the Israelite soldiers, hunkered down and terrified for our lives. David points forward to the Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns as the one true king, who fights in our place against our greatest enemy, who stands as our representative and our champion against the enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Which is absolutely clear. Because it's only in David and through David that the Israelites conquer the Philistines. But as a result of him conquering the greatest enemy, picturing the Lord conquering the devil, David, number four, becomes a beloved leader who literally is loved by all, including the people of God, the servants of Saul. He's even respected, loved, if you will, by his enemies. So David, picture that we're seeing has a heart for God, is a man of the Spirit, and is the people's representative deliverer, and is their beloved leader. And God has his hand of protection on David because Saul is jealous as a result of all of this, seeing David's ascendance through the th- to the throne. So how does he respond? Again, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. Saul's constantly trying to kill David all the way from chapter 19 to chapter 26. And yet God provides David with clear opportunities to kill Saul, put him to death once and for all. Once happens in a cave, Saul's going to the bathroom. David gets so close that he cuts off his robe. The other is when Saul is sleeping, David walks right into the camp. The text is super clear. The Lord put a spirit of sleep on all of the soldiers. They all stay asleep. David walks right into the camp, past all of the soldiers, right up to Saul, takes his sword away from his head. David could have easily killed Saul either time, multiple opportunities that the Lord provides, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because he wouldn't dare put his hand against God's anointed. And the text makes that clear. If you look at chapter 26, verse 10, it tells us how to interpret all of these things. It tells us that David is a king after God's own heart, that he's going to obey God. He's never going to put his hand against the Lord's anointed. David says, chapter 26, verse 10, the Lord will be the one to strike down Saul. The Lord will be the one to cause him to die of natural causes. The Lord will be the one to have him fail to fall in battle. But forbid it that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David is number five, a preserved ascendant. David is also number six, a faithful victor. Because as we wrap up, 1 Samuel chapters 27 to 31, you will see over and over again, constantly this back and forth story about David, story about Saul, story about David, story about Saul. It's contrasting the two against one another. So you can see clearly David is on the rise and Saul is in his demise. Saul's a murderer. David preserves life. Saul lies, disobeys God's commands and breaks his own laws. David does what is right, rescues the afflicted, and masters his enemies. And Saul remains terrified of his enemies. And in the end, in chapter 31, he is not conquering the enemy. He is conquered by the enemy. 
He is and his sons are killed and Saul has his head cut clear off, showing once and for all that we might understand that he is a seed of the serpent, which is why he's been constantly trying to kill the seed of the woman, David. So as we wrap up 1 Samuel, we are poised. We're ready for 2 Samuel where David is going to mourn Saul's death, but then he's going to be anointed by the people of God as their rightful promised king. And in chapter 7, we're going to be given this glorious covenant promise where God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall be from your line, from your own body, and I will establish his throne forever and his kingdom shall be for all eternity. We've established what we need in a king, a king after God's own heart. And we have a promise that through this king, there will be a kingdom. He is the king and there will be a kingdom where he will reign for all eternity. And of course, we understand in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, that all of this is pointing forward and is fulfilled ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these pictures, whether they're big or small, the details or the grand promises, we understand that because 1 Samuel is not ultimately about King David, right? It's about King Jesus. So grab a hold of the reality that, that this is not a fictional story. This is reality. This is fact that God has orchestrated all of history so that we might know that this is the king that we should be looking for. We need to be looking for a king after God's own heart who is called by God and empowered by God, who is actually God in the flesh because God is the one who ultimately rules and reigns over his people. God is the one who can deliver us. God is the one who can help us and heal us. God is the one who can care for us. God is the one who can conquer our greatest enemies, not Goliath, but sin and death and the devil. And God is the one through his son, the Lord Jesus, who can bring us into God's eternal favor. So as we move to number three, application of 1 Samuel, here's the question that I would like us to be asking. If that story, this story, 1 Samuel, the story and the stories within 1 Samuel is reality. If this is true, and we recognize it to be true because it is true, then how do we come to have a part in it? How do we let the glorious truths within this story impact how we live our lives? Meaning, how do we engage King Jesus and make sure that we're not one of his enemies, but one of his people? How do we make sure we're on the right side of the promised son, the promised prophet, priest, and king? How do we make sure that we're not aligned with the Philistines, the enemies of God, that we're not part of the seed of the serpent, but instead part of the seed of the woman? Well, two things that I want to say before we close. Number one, I think we need to know that we have a desperate need for King Jesus. I think we can't grab a hold of King Jesus unless we understand we have a need for King Jesus. And then number two, I think we need to make sure that by faith we truly have a heart, a pure heart, because he cares about our heart for King Jesus. So let me start with A, 
know your need for King Jesus. Because if you're here this morning and you have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, meaning you have not yet owned the reality of your sin or repented of your disobedience against God or put your faith in the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, then you need to understand that if this is fact, then you're more like the Philistines in this story. You're not included in the people of God, but instead you would be an enemy of God. Why is that? Because you're living contrary to King Jesus. And I want you to understand, and I, and I want you to make sure that you're not arrogant about your own abilities. You can't fight your own battle against sin, death, and the devil. You can try, but you will lose. Instead, you need to recognize your desperate need because if you can't conquer sin, death, and the devil in and of yourself, then you need a representative. You need a champion. You need somebody else to stand in your place. And the picture is clear, isn't it? You need a king. In particular, you need King Jesus to fight your battle because only King Jesus has won the victory. So you need to come to Jesus, repent of your sins, confess him as Savior, and obey him as Lord. Know your desperate need for King Jesus. The reality that you cannot do this on your own. You desperately need him to stand in your place. Therefore, come to him. Bow the knee before King Jesus and live your life in grateful God-honoring service to your King. I appeal to you to do so today. See the Lord Jesus in all of these glorious pictures. Engage it as the reality that you desperately need a king, and he's the king that God has offered. Bow the knee to King Jesus. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think this story, this picture is super helpful for us as well. And it's specifically in B, having a pure heart for King Jesus. Because we never stop repenting and believing and making sure that Jesus is truly on the throne of our hearts because our lives are one nonstop ongoing fight to keep Jesus front and center. All these distractions, but we need to keep him front and center as our rightful king. Meaning we don't have competing affections that take his place, his position or his prominence in our lives. You know, it's why I started with Max Licato's story, Children of the King. Remember the story, four out of the five orphans were so consumed with impressing the king that they became preoccupied with good things, but they allowed those good things to take the place of the main thing. They, they lost track of what matters most. What is the main point of that story? The king, all he wants is that you would have a heart for him. Which means, as you play this out, if King Jesus is really sitting on the throne of your heart, then his concerns should be your concerns. His mission should be your mission. And his agenda should be and must be your agenda. What exactly is his concern, his mission, and his agenda? Well, that we would have a heart that loves him more than anything. 
and that we would go appeal to other people so that they might have a heart that loves him more than anything. So I would just challenge us that we should never be afraid to ask the question, no matter who we're with or what we're doing, how does this bring glory to King Jesus? Are my concerns consistent with his concerns? Are my actions furthering his mission? Are my words being used to promote his agenda? And the glory of this reality is that when our hearts are truly in tune with his heart, he gives us absolutely everything we need, including the power to put sin to death, the ability to walk in godliness, the passion to care for others, and the zeal to make his name great among the nations. He gives all of that to us. If we learn anything from 1 Samuel, it's recognizing that God doesn't need us. He's the one who conquers all the battles. But how does that take place? Well, it happens through the king and the people of God, but they need to come to him. See how that's a picture of us having a heart after God's own heart. And as a result of having a heart after his own heart, then we joyfully carry out his missions and are concerned about his concerns and further his agenda. Just like Psalm 37, 4 declares, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the glory of 1 Samuel. May God give us the grace to be a people like that who know our desperate need for King Jesus and who have a pure heart, absolutely in love and totally committed to living for his glory, his honor, and his praise. May we be a people who have a heart after his own heart. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for the pictures. We're grateful for the stories. Lord, we recognize that in them, we see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory and majesty. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who have him on the throne of our hearts. Lord, that we would be those who know our desperate need for a king, recognize our inability in and of ourselves to conquer sin, death, and the devil. We absolutely need a champion. We need a representative. Lord, I pray that we're those who put our faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we're a people who live that out, not by getting distracted by all sorts of other things, but having a heart after his own heart, that we would be concerned about the things that he's concerned about, that we would be active in the mission that he's called us to be a part of, that we would be zealous to further his agenda. Lord, I pray that you'd empower us to do that, to love him supremely and to live for his glory, his honor, and his praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.